Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 43. The more that we find out every day, the more scientific research we have that says, like, the way that our minds affect our body is real, and the way that our body affects our minds is real, and the way that our bodies and minds exist influences who we are, our soul, right? Like, those three things are are very much, I don't even want to use the word interconnected. They're just like, they all are. They all exist together. Austin Hartke is the creator of the YouTube series Transgender and Christian, and is the author of the book Transforming, The Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians, uh, which actually is releasing on Saturday, April 7th, uh, this Saturday. Uh, So, like, go get get it. It's incredible. It's... uh, yeah, um, it's really good. Um, and <laughs> uh, gosh, okay. Um, Austin is a graduate of Luther Seminary's Master of Arts program in Old Testament Hebrew Bible Studies and is the winner of the 2014 John Milton Prize in Old Testament writing from the same institution. As a transgender person of faith, Austin's greatest passion is helping other trans, non-binary, and gender-diverse people see themselves in Scripture. Uh, I'm so excited about this. Uh, every time I have a conversation with Austin, I like walk away just thinking, ah, that is a good guy. Uh, I just, I, I don't have much more to say than that. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Austin, hi, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited to have you here. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, so to start, the question I ask everyone, uh, how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I identify as, well, let's see, how many modifiers am I going to give here? I, I guess I would say I identify as a transgender man, and I'm also bisexual, so that's part of it. But I'm also white, and I also grew up in sort of a middle-class family, and I live in Minnesota, so I've got a lot of Midwest going on in me. But uh, yeah, that's that's me. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And like, so you grew up in the Midwest. Um, I would imagine was like faith kind of part of that upbringing or is that something that you've come to later? Like what, what has that kind of story been? like? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, to your second question about like how faith and identity have informed each other. Um, I think, so I grew up, uh, in a non-denom church when I was, when I was younger, uh, in a vineyard church. So if you're familiar with vineyard at all, um, I grew up in a vineyard church till I was like, uh, well, for my first like five years or so, and then we switched to another non-denom church for a couple of years after that. Um, and so till I was like 10, I was sort of in this evangelical world that was fairly conservative. Um, and that was sort of how I grew up was like going to like Bible stuff, like Bible camp stuff every Wednesday night. And like, uh, if you're familiar with like the Awana program at oh, all, yeah. I yeah, was I was Iwana. big in Iwana. Yeah. <laughs> <The> Timothy <laughs> so Award. Was, yes, exactly. So uh, I did a lot of that. So lots of memorizing Bible passages. And so, um, so yeah, that was kind of how I grew up until I was like in my early teens. And um, at that point, my parents got divorced and um, I, my dad started moving toward the church he grew up in, which was the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, which is sort of the more conservative branch of the of the Lutheran Church. Um, and my mom kind of started moving away from religion. And so um, there, like my teenage years were sort of influenced by that in that I started grappling with ideas about like, why do bad things happen <laughs> at a fairly young age? Um, and, uh, and so that really influenced my faith journey. And I had this sense that um, <laughs> that like, I wasn't totally sure that Christianity was the right thing anymore at that point. I like, um, all this stuff that I had grown up with, I started sort of doubting and wondering like, what does this actually have to say to the terrible things that are happening in the world and in my life and, and all this kind of stuff. So it felt like I didn't really have any theological backing to fall back on because everything I'd grown up with was like, you know, um, I don't know, there was sort of like, God loves you and, you know, and, but also there are like very strict rules about how you must behave in order to keep that love coming. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, I didn't have like a good theological backing to help me deal with um, that difficult time in my life. And so I started looking at a whole bunch of different world religions. I, um, when I was 14, I was, I decided I was going to spend a year just like studying world religions. And I had this big notebook that I like wrote down all my notes in and I would read a bunch of stuff, a bunch of books and, and try Cause I had this sense that like, there must be one right religion out there somewhere. <laughs> and so, uh, so I did a bunch of studying and, um, it really, that was sort of where my, like my questions about theology and about the nature of God sort of came from was out of that time. And so, um, during that time also, like 14, 15 years old, I came out as bisexual and the process there 
um, came from a really unexpected source. So like during this year where I was trying to figure out, like learn more about different religions and what different people believed, um, I was also steadily falling in love with my best friend <laughs> who was a girl. And at the time, um, because I'm somebody who was assigned female at birth, um, I was read as female to everybody around me. And so this was kind of a problem <laughs> for, for me and for some other people. Um, because I had grown up hearing that like being gay or, or, you know, there wasn't really any talk about bisexuality. So that wasn't really even on my radar, but, but that, um, being gay or being attracted to other people of the same sex as you was bad. And so, um, I was like trying to come to terms with that at the same time. But this best friend who I had a big crush on, uh, brought me to a church for the first time that I had never been to before. Um, she brought me, she was like, you got to come to this church because we have a really great choir. And I really love singing in choir. That was like my favorite thing. I did was sung in like two different choirs at school. And so when she was like, here, join this third choir, I was like, absolutely, I'm in. <laughs> um, and so I followed her to this um, ELCA Lutheran church. They're the sort of more liberal branch of the Lutheran church. Um, and, and my experience there was uh, a really... It was like I was trying to do all this head work of like, I'm going to study religions, I'm going to ask these deep questions. But what actually brought me back to faith was the relational aspect of it, was the relationship that I had with this girl that I had a crush on, and then her bringing me into this choir where I formed relationships with a bunch of other people there, and then into the church in general, where like, um, since I was going to this church by myself, uh, I didn't have like family members with me who were coming with me, um, I was sort of adopted into all these families in the church who would like ask me home for Sunday lunch and stuff. And like, so it was really the relational aspect that brought me back uh, when I was like sure that I was going to be kicked out. All of these people were like, well, we love you and we're here for you. And that was what kind of, what kind of changed it for me. Hmm. Wow. So, so it sounds more like instead of it kind of like, it sounds like you kind of went on this quest for like almost like intellectual certainty mm -hmm. and what kind of caught you off guard was the, the I mean, you said, yeah, relationality, relationship, yep. like, yeah. It's... Yeah. And it was like, I love talking about that story because, um, you know, a lot of um, more conservative Christians maybe, um, who aren't LGBT affirming see, uh, like relationships between LGBT people as, something that draws us away from God. But it was like this relationship that I had with this girl that was the thing that brought me to God. <laughs> so like, I like that that kind of turns it on its head a little bit. Yeah, I love that. Because that is such like a counter narrative to what I feel like. I mean, it sounds like we grew up kind of in similar contexts of like what we were told growing up of like, all of this stuff will drive you away. And mm -hmm. you like never find your way back unless you have this like grand conversion experience, like blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. You, you had the exact opposite. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And like, and it wasn't like she was, um, it wasn't like, you know, my best friend was intentionally doing the, like, go out and make disciples thing. Like that wasn't her deal at all. She was just like, Hey, I want my friend from school to come with me on Wednesday nights. Like <laughs> it was not uh it was not a mission statement. It was just like, we want to be together. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's so cool. So, you were assigned female at birth, um, mm -hmm. and now you are, like, I mean, you have a book coming out on, like, being transgender and, like, how the Bible works in, like, 
you have so much going on of like around <laughs> your your work. Um, I'd love for you to maybe talk about some of that journey and some of the work that you're doing. And like, I mean, your book, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians, comes out on Saturday on the 7th. Um, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you um, so much. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of like... Uh, like, tell me everything question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm super excited about it. So I'm glad I get to. Uh, yeah, this book has been, um, well, it really, so it started out as a uh, personal sort of labor of love. Like, I've had people, as we're getting ready for the book to come out, I've had people ask me, you know, like, why did you write this book? Or or they, they say something about, like, it's so... Um, I don't know, it's so nice of you to have written this or whatever, like I'm doing somebody a big favor, but like this was a book that I wrote because I needed it. Um, it was something that I wish I would have had when I was trying to understand my gender identity. Um, so I guess I guess the story of the book sort of starts um, when I was in seminary. So um, I graduated, my, I did my undergrad at the University of Minnesota and then started seminary a couple of years later. And I began my seminary um, career just sort of um, like I was I was out as bisexual and like that was sort of my introduction to queer communities. But um, I knew that there was some stuff about my gender identity that I hadn't really dealt with. Uh, and it was something that I felt was too difficult. And so I had sort of shoved it in a box for a lot of years and tried to ignore it. And it just wasn't going away. And so um, as somebody who has, you know, like been through, you know, a divinity school or a seminary process, you understand this too, that like when you are asking these deep, deep questions about God and about community and about humanity, uh, you end up having to unpack things that you maybe had hidden for a really mm -hmm. long time. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so it was through the process of being in seminary, um, I spent my first year sort of grappling with even beginning to look at these things that I didn't want to look at. And then I spent my second year trying to figure out how to make the knowledge that I had come to about myself visible to other people. Um, and so what that meant for me was um, realizing that I had um, felt it's really hard to say, like, I had felt male, because what does that mean, right? Like, it, because none of us can um, feel what somebody else is feeling about their gender or anything else, we have to, in some ways, extrapolate, which can be inaccurate. <laughs> so, but but I, I felt this deep sense of myself as, um, a, as a guy. Uh, and, <laughs> like, that had been something that I'd felt for um, a really, really, really long time, for most of my life. And, um, and I had dealt with a lot of what's, what's sort of medically termed gender dysphoria, which is like this sense of disconnection between, um, who you know yourself to be and how other people see you. Um, and so there was a, there was, um, it's sort of like when you, uh, like one way you might think about this is like, if you get a like drastically different haircut and then you wake up the next morning and you look in the mirror and it takes you a second to be like, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> Like that's that feeling of disconnect between what you see and who you know yourself to be, um, but feeling that all the time. And like, um, so that's a little bit what it feels like um, to give like a very, <laughs> a very surface level example. Um, but, but so I felt that for a long time. And so digging into that in, when I was in seminary, I realized that I could not be in relationship with God and in relationship with the people around me if I was going to be presenting 
or like if I was going to be wearing a mask, if I was going to have walls up, if I was going to be presenting as something that I knew that I wasn't. And so the only way that I could be in real relationship with people and with God was to drop that and to, um, to sort of take that costume off and be myself. And so that's kind of how it started. And um, so after I graduated from seminary, I officially sort of came out as transgender. And, um, and I had to go through the process of talking to like my family about that. And I was on the phone with my dad one night and we were talking and I was still trying to, he didn't really have any understanding about like what it means to be trans or, um, or anything about like gender identity. And so I was sort of doing this from the very basic steps. And, but at one point he asked me, he said, how do you understand being transgender theologically? And I was like, oh, geez, <laughs> uh, let me get back to you on that. Because I had a lot of thoughts, but I hadn't really distilled them into anything that made sense yet. Um, the biggest stumbling block that I faced in coming out to myself was the narrative that like, if God created your body a certain way and you decide to change your body in some way, does that mean that you are saying that God was wrong? That was like the biggest hurdle that I was dealing with at the, the time. And, um, it took me a long time to realize that, um, that I like for me personally, I believe that God made me transgender on purpose that I, I think that there are, um, there are reasons for the way that I am. And I think that God, um, like when Psalm, uh, 139 says that we are, you know, we are knit together in our mother's wombs and we are beautifully and wonderfully made. Um, like that sense of being knit together is not just our bodies. Um, it's, it's all of who we are. It's like, it's our, um, the idea of, of a split into like body, mind, and soul is sort of a Greek <laughs> concept that, that we've taken that, that didn't exist back when like the Psalms were written, right? Um, for, for the folks in, in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, the sense of the wholeness of one's being was very important. And so that idea of like being knit together as a whole being, my personality, my identities, my body, um, all that stuff was all done on purpose. Um, and that was one of the first things that I, that helped me sort of grapple with my identity as a trans person. So the long story short of that, not very short, but, um, but the book came out of that question. How do you understand being trans theologically? Um, I started making YouTube videos, uh, addressing like specific questions or specific passages in the Bible. And, um, through those videos, I ended up making lots of connections with other LGBT Christians that were asking similar questions. Um, and so I started connecting with them and then realized that, um, we didn't really have a book that, that brought a lot of trans theology, um, together in one place and that was written from an affirming perspective and that was voiced and written by trans people. <laughs> um, so that was what I really set out to make. So what the book is, is a combination of like theology and biblical scholarship written in, you know, a really easy to read narrative structure, um, but then combined with stories from trans Christians today, because I didn't want my voice to be the only voice that people were listening to, because I have a very 
um, particular lens that I see the world through. So um, throughout the book, we've got people who are trans men, trans women, non-binary folks, um, people who are walk, walking sort of multi-religious paths. Um, we've got people um, who are of different races and ethnicities. We've got people who are dealing with like mental health issues. So um, I really wanted to bring forward the diversity of experience and diversity of thought, even within groups, um, so that it's not just like, here's the one way to understand how to be trans and Christian. There are a whole bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think like, I mean, that's such, I think, a, uh, I think that's something that we we do so quickly is kind of, I think anytime we work in these like minority kind of structures, like one person gets a voice often. Mm-hmm. And I think this is because, I mean, this is like oppression structures. One person gets a voice and then it's like, this is true for everyone. And that's, I mean, that's not that case. Like (laughs) like being gay looks different for everyone. Being trans looks different for everyone. Like there's such particularity, even in the midst of like sameness. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, sameness isn't the right word, but I think, you know what I'm. No, yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a chapter in, in the book where, um, I'm talking about, um, the bit in Galatians 3, Galatians 3.28, that's talking about how we are all one in Christ Jesus, um, and it's no longer male or female or slave or free, um, and talking about that passage with somebody who identifies as a uh, non-binary, genderqueer um, Christian who is also Native American. <laughs> and and uh, Z and I were talking about how our identities um, took a look at that passage, um, and, and the question of the difference between oneness and sameness, because you can be one without all being the same, without being homogenous. Um, and uh, Z sort of brought forward this um, metaphor of like a stained glass window and being different colored pieces in a stained glass window or like a mosaic of some sort where like you all create one picture, but you are very different pieces of that puzzle. Hmm. Hmm. I, lo- I love that. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it just that makes me think of like the body of Christ, and like Mm -hmm. we each have our particularities, and we're all needed in our very particularity. Like, Uh yeah. Um, so like a couple weeks ago when we were at White Christian together, um, we were like sitting in the back of an Uber talking about (laughs) yoga. Um, and and I'm I'm so curious about this because you because you said some things about like the practice of yoga and like embodiment that I had never really thought about before, particularly in like, I think when society kind of teaches us to hate our bodies or we're, when we're in particular places of where our bodies don't feel like we're proud of them or whatever. Um, and how yoga kind of brought you into your body in, in ways that are very different from say, maybe how it brings it into my body. I don't know if that would be fair to say. Um, no, I think I think that's true. I think everybody's got sort of a different um, a different way of connecting with their body. But I think for um, for anybody who has, like you said, been told that their body is, you know, bad or wrong or lesser or <laughs> any sort of negative connotation, um, the experience of connecting to your body uh, can be really powerful, but also really painful. Uh, and so, like. There's this sort of narrative out there that trans folks hate their bodies, right? That like we, um, uh, it's really, it's really a myth. I think <laughs> that I'm not like it's, um, it's, it's a myth because um, 
Well, okay. To explain this, I guess, in the simplest way is the medicalization of trans identities that says, like, you have a thing called gender dysphoria um, requires, in order to to have any sort of, like, hormone therapy or any sort of gender confirmation surgery or gender affirmation surgery, however you want to call it, um, in order to have that, you have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Um, and so what that means is that trans folks who want to transition in some way medically, um, or even that want to like change their documents, even if they don't want to change anything about their body, you have to essentially prove that you have such a hard time with your body. Um, you have to prove that to like a medical health, uh, or a mental health practitioner. Um, and so it ends up boosting this narrative of like trans people hate their bodies. Um, even when that's not necessarily true, but that's what we have set up the, the healthcare model to do is like, you have to prove that you have it bad enough, um, in order to be seen as really trans. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's brought this, this narrative of like trans people hate their bodies, but, um, most of the trans folks I know do not hate their bodies. <laughs> In fact, I, I guess, I think I would say all now that I think about it, um, they don't hate their bodies. Like, um, that, like for me, I'll speak for me personally. Um, I love my body. I think my body's great. Um, there were things that I had to change about my body in order to, um, deal with the, like deal with anxiety or deal with the, um, the dissonance that I was feeling that was getting in the way of like me being able to live my everyday life. <laughs> so, but, but it's very similar to the idea of like getting glasses. Like, like the feeling was in some ways very similar because like if you need glasses and you're like, man, I really can't see stuff around me very well. I can't read the stop signs and I can't read my book and I get headaches, you know, like that's a problem that's affecting your everyday life. And what do you do? Well, you get glasses or like maybe you get LASIK eye surgery or something. Um, and then, but that doesn't mean you hate your body. It's just mean this, that you had to change something so that you could live a healthy life. Um, and that's very much how I experience, um, how I experienced my body and, and dealing with gender dysphoria. So for me, um, and, and coming back to yoga, um, part of what yoga forced me to do was, um, to sit with discomfort that I feel. Um, part of what you do in yoga is sometimes hold positions for a really long time, uh, or at least it feels like a really long time when you're in it. Um, but to hold a position and just breathe there <laughs> and not move away from the discomfort. Um, and I think as human beings um, with bodies, we want to move away from discomfort. We want to, you know, that hurts. You, you take your hand off a hot thing. It hurts, you know, like that's meant to keep us safe. Um, but there are lots of ways that we can move away from discomfort that would actually be really good for us to sit in. <laughs> And so for me as a trans person, it's not like I'm on this endless quest to perfect things about my body. That's not the way that works. It's um, For me, it's that there are some things about my body that I need to change for my health, but there are other things about my body that I'm just like, oh man, that's kind of a bummer. Like everybody has things about their body that they're like, oh, I wish that was a little bit different. But being able to sit with that and be like, this is where we are and we're just going to sit with it and not try to run away from pain or discomfort, like that's a really... Um, that was really helpful for me in my transition mm -hmm. journey. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about that, like in my, in my own practice, like how, I mean, I, I have a yoga instructor who, who would always say like, like the yoga practice is like, what happens in this room is how you kind of respond to the rest of your life. Like it's like mm -hmm. life put into an hour. 
Um, <laughs> and she's like, the more we practice in here, the more we're able to move out into the world in different ways. Um, and that makes so much sense to me, like that, like what you're saying, that learning to sit in discomfort and then maybe even learning to kind of bless that discomfort mm-hmm. and in the ways that that like it is very transformative like mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah good stuff <laughs> <laughs> it is it's really um it's something that i still have a hard time with like they're like um especially when um it feels like your body like wants to do something that you don't want to do, or you want to do something that your body can't do. Like <laughs> that, uh, that feeling of, of discomfort can be hard, but, um, it, yeah, like you said, I like the, I like the terminology used there of like blessing that discomfort. Um, because I think it, it really, um, it just helps you realize that you can stay in that place and not be destroyed. <laughs> is like a really powerful thing to realize because um, especially if you are somebody who um, has faced um, I don't know like any sort of like physical violence in your life or if you have faced any sort of spiritual or mental violence in your life um, like for me I'm like super conflict avoidant and that's like something that I have to deal with all the time is like I don't want to be in this conversation. I don't want to be in this fight. I don't want to, you know, like, um, and so for me to realize that I can stand in places of discomfort and that I will survive it is a really powerful thing to remind yourself. Yeah. Like (laughs) I'm, I'm the same way in the conflict avoidance. Like (laughs) my gosh, (laughs) even as you're, even as you're saying this, I'm thinking of conversations that I need to have right now. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh yes, you're right. You're right. Like, (laughs) um, we were talking earlier, like before we got on this call, kind of about, um, how you've been doing some thinking around like spiritual experiences, that like connect us to our bodies and yoga being one of them. Um, but it sounds like you've been doing maybe some broader thinking around that too. And especially I think like, I mean, being queer and I would imagine being trans probably calls, I mean, it calls us into our bodies in, in ways that are very particular. Um, I'm curious around like spiritually, what are some of those practices or what are some things that you've learned doing spiritual practices that have given you maybe different relationships with your body. Um, what has that kind of looked like? Oh, geez, that's a good, that's another good question. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about how to connect with, with my body and in general, how we connect with our bodies. Um, because, uh, it's so easy for us to go a whole day without like feeling like we're in our bodies, or at least it's easy for me. Um, and, uh, and there are lots of spiritual practices out there that have existed for hundreds and thousands of years that connect people to their bodies. Um, and, and, and like you say, sort of bless that connection. Um, it, uh, yeah, I think for queer and trans folks, um, it's something that we feel, or I, I guess I should speak to like for, for sort of LGB folks, for people who are uh, sexual minorities, the, the 
connection to our bodies can often feel super dangerous because everybody else is connected to our identities with sex. <laughs> so like that feels super uncomfortable and dangerous for us a lot of the times. Um, but I think, um, there are ways for people to connect with their bodies and connect with their identities that don't feel as dangerous. Um, and not, and I'm not saying like we shouldn't do the work of, of stuff that feels transgressive in some ways. Cause I think that can, that has this place too. But I think for people that are just coming to an understanding of their identity, um, I'm trying to find different spiritual practices that can help connect us to our bodies when we're feeling a little bit more shaky about things, <laughs> when we're not ready to be like out there and in your face. Um, and, um, so yeah, so I guess um, for me, uh, I have found personally that I like I've tried <laughs> I've tried many times throughout my life to practice like sitting meditation um, because as somebody with anxiety, uh, you know I've had you know therapists and and people tell me like well you should practice some sitting meditation it'll really help and um, I have found that for me personally sitting meditation doesn't work very well for me because I need to feel my body in motion in order to um, feel my breath and to like um, to come to a calmer space. If I am just sitting by myself without moving, um, I have a harder time connecting to my body. It becomes more of a mental thing for me than a physical thing. And so for me, things like walking meditation or things like yoga, where I'm moving my body have been really, really helpful. Um, and also, doing any sorts of like if you've ever done a sort of meditation like body scan or body awareness type of thing that's been really helpful for me and so like looking at those particular traditions that come to us through like eastern traditions through meditation traditions out of um tibet and china and india um that's been that sort of spurred my interest in finding out more of those types of traditions within christianity because they do exist um there are lots of, um, like we talk about, like the desert fathers, the desert mothers, right? These people in, in Alexandria um, that were some of the you know, most ancient Christian communities, they had lots of spiritual practices that connected body and mind. And so I'm really interested in sort of digging into some of those. And I haven't gotten too far into the research yet, so I can't speak to it um, at this point. But I'm really interested in looking at, like, rather than... Um, uh, Rather than sort of like, um, I just want us to be careful of the sort of appropriation of things like, you know, yoga, Eastern traditions. And rather than um, taking those in a direction that would be harmful for lots of people, um, looking at our own tradition and seeing like, what are the spiritual practices within our tradition that we might embrace now that we've maybe forgotten about? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's so important. And, and to even think about like Christianity is, is having these traditions which like in the world i grew up in like i didn't even know those existed that there were right. other forms of christianity or variations of christianity that have these deeply embodied and connected practices that mm -hmm. are so different from like the kind of intellectualism of kind of i think where we are in the western church or at least the context that i grew up in and mm -hmm. um yeah, that's really yeah. Cool. One of the things I've really liked reading more about is is uh, um, uh, oh, now I've totally lost the name of it. Um, it's the it's like the sacred imagination thing where you put yourself in 
uh, Bible story and try to imagine like what you're sensing in that place. Oh, interesting. I'm trying to think of what that's called again because now I've totally lost the name of it. Oh, it'll probably come back to me like tomorrow <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> but, um, but it's a practice where you, um, I think you, I mean, it's called sacred imagination, but there's a Latin term for it. Okay. Um, but it's this idea of like, if you read a Bible story, usually it's from one of the gospels. Usually it's like part of Jesus's ministry, but you read a passage, maybe like four or five verses. Um, and you try to like close your eyes and put yourself in that scene and try to get your senses working on what's going on there. So what do you smell? What do you taste? What do you hear? Um, just based on like how you imagine that situation to be going. And it can be, um, for me, it's a really powerful way of connecting to, um, connecting to the gospel, but also making it feel alive in a way that I hadn't experienced that before. And so that's been something that I've had a lot of fun with recently. Yeah. That's super cool. I've, I don't know that I've heard of that practice. In like, yeah, so, gosh, I sure wish I could think of the name of it. It'll come to me later. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you do, let me know. I'll put it in the show notes and people Perfect. will be able to figure it out. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there's like five people listening to this right now that are shouting out Shouting the name, it, yes. <laughs> too sad that I don't remember. <laughs> uh, so my, my mind is going to, because this is a critique, um, and I think I've talked about it a little bit Um on the podcast before, but I'm interested in this because I think so often when we start talking about bodies, so often when we start talking about like queer identities, trans identities, there's the word Gnosticism that Mm, kind of gets brought up. Um, And again, like I, I always say like the way that people define Gnosticism is not right, but I'm curious (laughs) what, what your thoughts are, especially as one who's located in a particular body and like you're doing work that connects you directly to your body. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts around that? And maybe, <laughs> maybe give some definition around Gnosticism as well. Maybe for people who are like, wait, why does this word? Um, the... Yeah. Yeah. It's um, so Gnosticism is one of the ancient heresies, <laughs> um, which is right up there with um, my other favorite ancient heresy, which is Marcionism, which is the idea that the old Testament should just be tossed out because the new Testament's the only one that matters. And as an old Testament scholar, I'm like, no, don't. But anyway, um, <laughs> But yeah, no, so Gnosticism is this idea that you are saved through a special knowledge, essentially, that you are, that it's something that you, um, it's like a secret knowledge that, um, a secret knowledge that only certain people have that will save you. And it's also connected to the idea of um, the spirit being the important thing, that like the body doesn't matter and really all that matters is the spirit and your sense of knowledge or reason or logic. Um, and it's a very um, sort of a Greek sort of thing <laughs> that we, we see connected with the ancient Greeks, uh, ancient Greek philosophers a lot. Um, and what's so interesting to me about the idea that people are connecting, um, so, you know, N.T. Wright, um, the, the scholar N.T. Wright was one of the first people, or not the first, actually, he's one of the recent, most recent people who have connected trans folks to this idea of Gnosticism. And it's fascinating to me because in my experience, the people that have been telling me all my life that the spirit is more important and to crucify the flesh have been Christians. <laughs> like people that are like really intense Christians. Like they're the ones that have been telling me all my life that like the body is bad and all you need to do is go to heaven, right? Um, and so it's fascinating to me that it's sort of uh, argument leveraged against trans folks now. Um, but 
but I think it's really a misunderstanding of trans identities because, um, so, so like N.T. Wright's argument was trans people are so focused on their internal self that they don't care at all about the external self, um, or that they, they have a lower view of their body or something like that. Um, and that's just, I mean, it's just not accurate. Um, <laughs> like, I don't really know how else to defend it other than to say it's not accurate. Because um, for the trans folks I know, our bodies matter a lot to us. Like, a lot, a lot. Like, so much that we uh, go through a bunch of really frustrating medical paperwork and that we spend a bunch of money trying to just be seen as who we are. Um, and that we, you know, we face violence all the time for just being who we are and being perceived in a certain way. And like, as somebody who's perceived as a white man, I'm like at way less risk than anybody else in the trans community, but I still have that fear. Like I still carry that fear around, even if it's not grounded in the same reality of, of danger. Um, and so like the idea that we say that like our bodies don't matter and, like, that's just not accurate. We think our bodies matter a lot. Um, and uh, I think I think the real problem here is not a argument about which is more important, body or spirit. The, the problem here is that we have separated those two things. <laughs> um, because when we, like, we don't exist as body, mind, and spirit. We exist as a whole being. And we have sort of separated those things out in order to understand different parts of ourselves better. But when we act as if, those three parts of us are really disconnected. Um, we get into these sorts of arguments that don't reflect reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I, like, that's all I have to say is, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, um, yeah. And like the more that we find out every day, the more scientific research we have that says like our, the way that our minds affect our body is real and the way that our body affects our minds is real. And the way that our bodies and minds exist influences who we are, our soul, right? Like um, those three things are, are very much, um, I don't even want to use the word interconnected. They're just like, they all are, they all exist together. Um, and it seems to me that as people who confess a Trinity, we should be able to get used to that sort of three and one and one and three situation. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so maybe to close, um, I'm, I'm curious. So for, for people who are listening, who are maybe just beginning their journey of kind of wrestling with their gender identities or have maybe some like sinking suspicions or thoughts or even like beginnings of that. Um, what would you say to someone who's kind of starting out on this journey of exploration? Mm, I think the, um, the hardest thing for me when I was first trying to figure out more about my gender identity was the realization that nobody else could tell me the answer. <laughs> um, all I wanted at that point was for somebody else to come up and, you know, slide a metal scanner over me or something and be like, beep, beep, perfect, you're trans, it's official. <laughs> like, <laughs> all I wanted was for somebody else to give me the answer um, because it was really, really difficult to try to figure out, um, especially, uh, it's just a really hard thing to to deal with internally and especially when you feel like you can't talk to anybody about it. So um, 
I think the thing that was most helpful for me when I realized that the answer could only come from inside me was being able to have conversations about that with other people. Um, because even if nobody else could give me the answer, they let me process out loud um, and they let me try things on. I like in the beginning process of realizing that I needed to or wanted to change my name and pronouns, I felt really, really weird about that. <laughs> and like, I didn't know how to start. And so I just asked my girlfriend, um, I said, like, just, I gave it a very distinct time limit. I said, like, for this weekend, will you try using this name and pronouns for me? <laughs> and, um, and she was totally down to do it. And it was great. Um, and like, obviously, she was just like, this is going to be hard for me. Like, I can't switch over on the dime. And I was like, oh, I totally get it. But like, let's let's practice it and see what happens. And like having people in your life who can do that with you is a incredible blessing. And it is something that I wish every trans person could have. Um, but yeah, I would say my biggest advice would be to find people who you feel safe enough with to process with and um, to try things on with. And that might be like, if you live in a place where you don't know anybody else who's affirming, like that might be online. That might be just like, I'm using this name for a while in like a chat group that I'm in part of, or like it can be anything, but just like trying stuff on and letting yourself, um, yeah, letting yourself try stuff on is I think one of the most important things that was helpful to me. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a very kind of kind like grace-filled process in a way of just kind of giving yourself the space and the curiosity to just kind of play with it like, yes exactly like it it's that is exactly what it is but it's also why it's so hard yeah. <laughs> because when there's so many people around you in like wider culture that has made trans made being trans into something political and has made it into something that everybody has to have a stance on there isn't space for grace in the, in the people around you so much of the time and so like ha having that grace for yourself while also knowing that you may not get that from other people that's terrifying <laughs> so like it's okay to be scared <laughs> yeah yeah it takes a lot of work to cultivate that <laughs> Gosh. Yep. yeah uh austin thank you so much yeah thank you for having me yeah this has been such a pleasure how can people find your work they can find me all over the place my website is austinhartkey.com and that's it's got links on it to my trans and christian videos and to the book and to there's a giant resource page there so if you're interested in learning more about um trans faith stuff there's like a whole page of resources update every six months so that's a big one but yeah and then on social media i'm um austin lionheart on youtube on, on twitter and then i'm austin hartkey on facebook awesome great we'll link all those up so Thanks. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Be sure to pick up a copy of Austin's new book, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. That comes out on Saturday, April 7th. That's this Saturday. Uh, to find out more about Austin's work, head over to his website, austinheartkey.com. He's on Twitter and YouTube, at Austin Lionheart, and on Facebook, at Austin Hartkey. Chorology is on Twitter and Instagram, at ChorologyPod, or you can tweet me directly, at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, Christian Hayes, and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Chorology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Chorology is by leaving a rating or a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. 
As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of who you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.